you hear from people this overwhelming sense of surveillance and scrutiny and pressure that they all face. Not only people who are you know, politically active in some sense or might have some compromising information about the government, but just people. I think that migration is a process as huge as climate change. Welcome back to another episode of Medusa's only English language podcast, The Naked Pravda. I'm Eilish Hart, the news editor for Medusa in English, and on this week's show, I'm talking to two expert guests about how the Russian government carries out repressive activities outside its borders, particularly in Europe. The experts I spoke to told me that while the Russian authorities are known for their highly aggressive actions abroad, Migrants and asylum seekers from the Russian North Caucasus are under particular threat, especially due to tightening migration policies and rising xenophobia in EU countries. And this speaks to global trends that make it easier for states to carry out repressions beyond their own borders. So what we define as transnational repression is when you have a state that is going after one of its nationals, which we use that term kind of broadly speaking. So it could be a citizen, it could be someone who maybe gave up citizenship, but the origin state doesn't recognize that they gave it up, <laughs> you know, still exerts a claim over them. They're going after them in order to silence them uh, politically, or perhaps we could say civically. They basically don't want them to speak. They don't want them to be able to criticize that origin government. Um, they don't want them to be able to engage in activism or to meet with other people or to speak out about what they saw back when they lived in that country or about what's happening there now. That's Nate Schenken, the director for research strategy at Freedom House. I reached out to him for an interview after Freedom House published a global study on transnational repression earlier this year. In terms of tactics or in terms of what kind of activities are included in this, um, we took a pretty broad definition of that uh, to incorporate, obviously, very physical direct attacks. So kidnappings, assassinations, um, when people are unlawfully deported at the origin state's request, these physical tactics, but also things that are non-physical, but which have a lot of impact uh, for people, um, including things like digital threats, and also what's called coercion by proxy, which is when people's family members or other loved ones who still live in that origin state when they are imprisoned or threatened or harassed in order to silence the person who's abroad. To kind of zoom in on Russia, what are some of the main tools that the Russian authorities use? Russia is a really interesting case. I mean, all of our cases are interesting, uh, but Russia is, is very unique and very particular. Um, one of the things that's unique about it is that uh, the Russian state, um, I'll speak broadly here, um, at the high level, is extremely aggressive. So I'm sure listeners and others who follow Russia um, are aware of very high-profile assassinations. You know, um, Alexander Litvinenko, um, the Skripal uh, attempt, um, and, as well as others related to Chechnya, which I'll come to later. This is a very high proportion of assassinations. I mean, it should be unsurprising probably, but like assassinations are fairly rare. <laughs> um, we did a global study, you know, we coded 608 cases of direct physical transnational repression since 2014. There's only 26 assassinations or assassination attempts in that 
set of cases, and seven of those are connected to Russia. Um, and if we expanded the time series longer, we'd see even more. So there's this like very intense level at the far end of the spectrum that Russia is very active on. There's a sense that people are um, physically targeted in the most aggressive means possible. And I should say as well that some of the ways in which people are targeted, again, I'm sure listeners are familiar with this, but, you know, rare nerve gases, um, (laughs) radioactive isotopes, uh, very, um, uh, as well as more blunt, you know, pistols in the back of heads and things like that. Um, There's this very extreme and kind of provocative form of transnational repression that the Russian state frequently applies, where the attack itself kind of sends a message, right, that we will do this even to people who are pretty high profile, to people who are perhaps guarded by the host state where they're residing, and we, we will go after them in this very high profile way. A second thing that's unique is that it's really bifurcated, and, and I tried to explore this in the case study, it's really bifurcated between, you know, there isn't a great term for this, but, you know, Russians in general and Chechens. Russians in general there are people who are targeted. There are these high-profile cases, Litvinenko, Skripals, etc. Um, they tend to be people who are either former insiders um, or are somehow politically very prominent. Um, and, and they have been targeted in very violent ways, but it's at this very extreme end. The much larger population of people who could be defined as part of the Russian diaspora, including people who have left um, in recent years, um, are mostly ignored. Unlike some of the other countries that we studied, the Russian state doesn't really pay attention to a very large part of the Russian diaspora, kind of leaves them alone. And so that's one interesting thing. Another interesting thing, though, is that it's very different for Chechens. Chechens as a population, uh, Chechens abroad, Chechens in diaspora are really under very heavy scrutiny um, from the Chechen Republic, from Ramzan Kadyrov and his uh, team, his allies, and they face extremely violent threats. So a large number of assassinations and assassination attempts, as well as unlawful deportations, um, as well as other kind of ongoing lower level threats. To talk a little bit more about the the case of Chechnya, because I think if I understood the report correctly, like it's unique in that it's a subnational level of government going after members of the diaspora abroad. Is there anything comparable in another country or is this truly something that's like unique to Chechnya in the world. There's not something that we found that's comparable where it's driven by the subnational government. So I don't want to say that the Kremlin isn't aware of it. The Kremlin, I know I'm using this euphemistically, but you know what I mean. Moscow, the central government of the Russian Federation. Um, there are plenty of signs that they're fully aware of what Kadyrov and the, the, the Republic of Chechnya is doing abroad, and that in some cases they're helping to do it. But uh, they aren't necessarily, it seems, the drivers of it. There are other cases around the world where there are specific minority groups that are targeted. Um, As you can imagine, you have people involved in separatist movements, you have people involved in political movements that are based on ethnic identity. Um, You can imagine, you know, Kurdish movements in Turkey, Baloch movement in Pakistan, um, these kinds of things where the target might be from a minority, but the targeting comes from the central state primarily. It isn't at the subnational level. So yes, I think Chechnya is... Um, is unique in that way. And it is certainly not something that we saw in other places. In addition, that it's really totalitarian. You know, um, when you speak to people in the Chechen diaspora, when you read the reporting that great journalists have done, like Yelena Milashina, um, 
you hear from people this overwhelming sense of surveillance and scrutiny and pressure that they all face. Not only people who are you know, politically active in some sense or might have some compromising information about the government, but just people who are abroad. Um, the feeling that the community is under a lot of scrutiny all the time and that if you make a false step, your life could be at risk. So to follow up on this point of like whether or not uh, Kadyrov's regime is kind of acting independently of Moscow or the Kremlin, what are some of the ways in which you could say that the central government in Russia enables the Kadyrov regime to carry out these assassinations? Like if they're not you know, necessarily being handed down from the Kremlin, so to speak. Right. Well, I mean, there's all sorts of indications. I mean, another aspect of the Russian um, case that's very important for this kind of global study, where we're really drawing a lot on other people's reporting and other people's work, right, is that Russia is very heavily studied. A lot of the operations of Russian intelligence services is very heavily studied by investigative journalists and others. Um, so if you take something like the assassination of Zelimhan Khangashvili, um, which took place in Berlin in 2019, very famous, you know, guy assassinated sitting on a park bench in the center of Berlin. The guy who was arrested there, kind of accidentally arrested, right? He sort of tried to get away on a bicycle, but some people noticed him throw away the gun and the police grabbed him and now he's in prison. Um, you know, Bellingcat has done a lot of work on this guy's identity, and it seems pretty clear that he's a contract killer who is linked to the FSB. Um, and had perhaps worked for the FSB previously inside of Russia. Um, and that indicates, right, this kind of circle that's taking place between someone who's Chechen, the, the target, Zelimhan Khangashvili, who's a fighter during the wars, um, in the, the, the wars for independence of Chechnya, um, who's certainly in the resistance to Kadyrov and then went into diaspora and into exile. Um, and that there might be some kind of level of cooperation between the center and the periphery or between the center and Chechnya. Um, you have similar dynamics in some of the other cases that are seen where you have people who are critics of Kadyrov who are targeted, but there's like a very high level of, let's say, you know, operational sophistication um, for what these people are doing. Um, you know, infiltration of people's locked apartments while they're sleeping, um, this kind of stuff, um, which isn't to say that Chechens aren't, you know, the Chechen Republic couldn't build up that capacity itself. But it certainly looks more like the kind of thing that would be done in cooperation with the Central Intelligence Service. And then there's also just the fact of the impunity of it, um, that this has been going on for a long time. Um, you know, uh, our, our, our data, you know, the, the cases that we compiled, we only went back to 2014 because uh, of limitations in, in process and resources. But this has been going on from Chechnya since the mid-2000s. You have assassinations of people abroad. And there's certainly been no interest in putting a stop to it um, from the Russian Federation, like a lot of, um, or like all of the human rights violations that occur under Kadyrov, um, which are very well documented, are very brutal, and there's really very little interest um, from the center in changing that situation. Can you say that like these cases are, are ramping up? That's always a good question and a hard one for us to answer in, in like strict counting terms. And in globally, we're not quite sure and in Russia's case, I would say I'm, I'd be loath to say that it's ramping up specifically over time, like in a straight line kind of way. There's been a lot of stuff in the past couple of years. It's always hard to say, you know, these things are it's such a small number of cases. Like, is it going up or is it going down? There's a continuity of it and like a, a weight of just them doing it all the time, I think is the most important thing. Broadly speaking, so if we get past kind of individual assassinations and incidents like that, Broadly speaking, our argument is that 
transnational repression is becoming a larger problem globally and in general because of the ways in which people who go abroad are more connected back to the states from which they left and that those states are more connected to them. So when people go abroad, and you see this a lot in the Russian, especially the Chechen diaspora, a lot of these people are very active um, in in public, right, in a way that wasn't possible 10 or 20 years ago because of the internet. So they are, you know, social media critics of Ramzan Kadyrov. They have popular YouTube channels. They are people who are really outspoken in this public space um, that didn't exist, like that, that, that you just didn't have in a previous generation of diaspora. And that enables them to be more of a threat um, to the government. So the government perceives them as more threatening because those voices are heard. A lot of these people are speaking in Chechen. A lot of them are speaking for Chechen audiences. And so they're, they're heard by people back home. And so for that reason, they're, they feel threatened. But it also enables the government to, um, to track them and to find them and to surveil them and to, to, you know, at a minimum, threaten and smear them and use these kind of more subtle means or, or more um, lower level means, but also to like conduct espionage against them. find out more about how the Russian and Chechen authorities go after members of the diaspora abroad, I spoke to Katerina Sergatskova, the editor-in-chief of the Ukrainian outlet Zaborona Media. I monitor how European uh, governments respond to terrorist attacks and acts of violence uh, that were committed by people who declare, you know, kind of radical religious ideas. So I, uh, I do it constantly, like for years. Uh, and I also follow how migration policy is changing in countries such as Germany, France, Austria, you know, big, big European countries that, that can force some trends in migration policies. And I, I look at how they react to refugees from our authoritarian states like Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. And over the past decade, I, I see how this policy has seriously changed. Because in 90s and early 2000s, when the Chechen war and revolutions uh, in post-Soviet countries were uh, ongoing and thousands of people fled from their homes away from, you know, persecutions and, uh, and violence, Europe uh, actively hosted them. But now everything has changed, uh, I would say radically. And those refugees and their families are often pushed home. But this is still dangerous for them, even after, you know, um, decades uh, after the war and, and, and revolutions. Katarina's reporting often explores how transnational repression activities intersect with migration policy. In January, she reported on EU officials threatening to return Chechen asylum seekers to Russia. The story centered around Mohammed Gadayev, a former Chechen separatist who fled Russia in 2010 and has spent the past decade seeking asylum in Europe, first in Poland and then in France. As it turns out, Gadayev is just one of many Chechen asylum seekers now facing expulsion from France in the aftermath of an 18-year-old Chechen murdering a history teacher in a Paris suburb last fall. Yeah, the story of Mohammed Gadayev is very complicated. I mean, Every Chechen story is very complicated. And when you uh, start to explain why a Chechen guy is in prison in France and he is accused of being a terrorist or radical uh, Islamist, 
you should explain, you know, the whole story of current Russia. You know, it's kind of 25 years or even 30. <laughs> this story has deep connections with uh, Russian democracy and, and how this democracy died in, in the beginning of uh, 2000s. The story of Mohammed Gaddaev is not a really uh, unique case. This happens with uh, hundreds of Chechens and, and not only Chechens, but people from Russia, from Kazakhstan uh, and other not very democratic uh, countries from post-Soviet space. So yeah, we can say that he's not alone. He even told me that there in, in his detention center, he found three or four Chechens uh, that fled Russia as well as him. Like almost the same story. The, the problem is that Russian authorities, they know that European countries have, have very tough migration systems, uh, especially in France or in Germany. And if... Uh, for example, an asylum seeker uh, gets a red flag from Interpol, being accused of, you know, terrorism or radical something, extremism. And then they take it very seriously, and asylum seekers uh, cannot, you know, get rid of it simply. Like it, it is very difficult, uh, and only the best lawyers can do this. But refugees often have no money for that. Uh, so th- there are some organizations that can help them, but, um, you know, I would say that this is pretty rare. So European countries usually trust the system by default and private asylum seekers, you know, people who who want to enter Europe. They think that migrants, uh, forced migrants, uh, are liars who have found an excuse to move to a rich and calm and great country where they can claim some compensations and do not uh, have to work there. Uh, and just leave and relax, you know, uh, Europeans. So, <laughs> yeah, they also see migrants as, you know, people who just want to have fun. But this is a very stereotypical uh, xenophobic or even colonial view of people from so-called third world countries. European systems largely ignore what is happening in the countries from which refugees are fleeing. And for example, they often explain uh, why they uh, refuse to um, to people um, by the fact that Russia is a democratic country, democratic country, where citizens are not in danger uh, if they are not criminals. But you know that reality is quite different, and some people really afraid uh, to live in current Russia. Freedom House also found that the Russian authorities take advantage of international systems to carry out transnational repression activities. In particular, their Russia case study described the Kremlin as, quote, perhaps the world's most prolific abuser of the Interpol notice system, end quote. So Interpol has this reputation as like an international police body, right, that has agents. And you'll even see this in news media all over the world, that Interpol agents did blank. Um Interpol doesn't have any agents. (laughs) Interpol is basically uh, a big messaging system for police departments and law enforcement around the world to communicate with each other. And so they use Interpol as a means to um, share information, mostly about people that they're looking for. 
And so that could be people that you want to arrest um, or want to have extradited. It could also be missing children. It could be um, people who are somehow associated with a document so you can report lost and stolen documents in it, like passports. Um, and all of this basically is a way to share information among police agencies. And you can understand how this would come up in a time when people are traveling a lot um, and there are transnational issues, whether it's drug smuggling or human trafficking or terrorism, et cetera. However, um, Interpol itself doesn't have the capacity um, or the procedures to vet those notifications when they before they go out in the system. So they do have a constitution. They do have um, bylaws, basically, for what they're supposed to do. And you're not supposed to be able to uh, make politically motivated requests through the system. However, governments have found for more than 10 and 20 years that you can do that. Um, and you can do it actually pretty easily, um, even as procedures have changed and it's gotten a little more difficult. And this is, again, sort of a technology component, is that you used to, of course, 20 some years ago, have to like fill out a paper form <laughs> and fax it in. But as of, I believe it was 20 years ago, maybe 18 years ago or so, you can, of course, do this through a digital form. Through a, through a form that you upload. And so all you really need is a spreadsheet with the names of the people that you want and their identifying information, which if you're a state, of course, it's easy for you to have. You have people's ID numbers and birth dates and things like that. Uh, and then you can submit them um, really easily. So you see Interpol abuse skyrocketing. In Russia's case, um, of the public red notice requests that are available. So not all red notice requests are available, obviously, because some of them are, are kept closed because we don't want people to know about them. Um, but of the public ones that are available, Russia originates 38% of them globally. That's insane. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. The US, we, we, look, we went ahead and looked it up too because we were like, wow, that's even so much. Um, the US is 4.3%. China is 0.5%. <laughs> there's this real, there's some weird dynamics there. Um, and it, and it produces concrete results. So there's been a couple of cases in the last few years of Russian, Russian individuals who in kind of typical Russian story fashion, you know, were business people, had some sort of falling out back in Russia, left the country, came to the United States in this case, um, and sought asylum, were actually detained on Interpol notices in the U.S. for over a year because of the interpretation that sometimes is used in the U.S. and in other places that an Interpol notice is an arrest warrant. And it's really not. Um, it doesn't have any of the um, any of the judicial procedure that goes into an arrest warrant. No one's really scrutinized it in the same way. There's been no opportunity uh, for it to be examined in terms of evidence. Um, so that's what Interpol abuse is. And that's certainly become a big issue. In Russia's case, of course, Bill Browder has written a lot about it. He's been subject to this tactic. You know, you see it kind of um, bubbling up and then and then uh, diminishing again, and you always think that oh, they're finally going to get this straightened out. Um, <laughs> but it, it it continues to cause problems, and at risk of getting too far into the weeds, you know it it continues to cause problems in part because now we're talking about globally dispersed technological systems um, for maintaining data. So these things, when they go out, when they are disseminated through the Interpol system, and they enter local databases, local law enforcement or immigration databases. Um, those databases aren't always updated. So it is actually a pretty serious problem, um, and one I think that underscores this, the, the, the complexity of dealing with something where, of course, there's cooperation between states like Russia and, say, Spain or the United States. I mean, there still is cooperation at some level, and that's what Interpol is there for, is to facilitate some kind of cooperation or communication. But what does it mean to cooperate when there's so little rule of law 
on one side of it, and when on the other side you at a minimum have very inefficient, um, kind of outdated systems for, for addressing that. So what about the cases of people who do end up getting deported back to Russia? Like, what do we what do we know about what happens to them when they get sent back? Can we look in, into this question using the example of Ukraine? Sure. Because I know in data dozens of cases when when authorities try to extradite people uh, at the Russian request. So those people apply for asylum, not only Chechens, but, you know, some political, like, opposite people uh, from, I don't know, from Navalny team or from uh, another Jews that are forbidden in Russia. Uh, so they apply for asylum uh, and Ukrainian Migration Service refuses them. The courts begin, uh, refugee uh, even can win the court, but Migration Service refuses to comply with the court's requirements. And doesn't give you asylum. And people uh, can live uh, in Ukraine for years without documents, without any human rights. They are fearful. They, they can earn money. You know, they, they cannot work legally. So they try to find a way to leave Ukraine, uh, even illegally, uh, because bureaucracy makes their life miserable. Do you find it easier to find sources, like individuals who want to talk to you about what's happening to them in terms of their asylum process? Uh, this world is very small. <laughs> some pe- some mm-hmm. people uh, know uh, journalists who cover this topic because uh, this topic is pretty, uh, pretty tough and, and not very popular. So, yeah, I, I'm not the only, but, you know, <laughs> I often write about it in Ukrainian uh, media, so uh, people know me. And uh, they usually uh, uh, some uh, organizations that help them with documents or with uh, some, something in the process. Uh, and uh, these organizations, they already know me, so they uh, request if I have time and, and passion <laughs> to... to to talk to those people. And uh, when I uh, spoke to Mohamed um, Gadaev, I uh, already knew that there are hundreds of cases in, in Europe, well, like in France, in Germany, in Austria, cases like, like his case. So um, I discovered that this is uh, pretty big. I mean, uh, I, I discovered that this is a new wave of expulsion of Chechen migrants. I, I know that it is pretty rare that people are interested in migration and and expulsion and, you know, all, all these difficult processes. But I think that migration is a process as huge as climate change. People who fled Russia and not only the uh, Chechnya or Dagestan, like people who, who moved from Russia for political reasons, uh, they used to live in fear for years. This, Russia doesn't leave uh, its citizens alone. And I think it's a kind of official policy uh, to constantly keep them on a short leash. 
And this is applies to environmental activists, uh, LGBT activists, uh, and even Muslims who um, profess a different direction of Islam and do not agree with the actions of uh, Russian authorities. So yeah, those people really live in fear, even when they uh, live in different countries. Obviously, most people, when they flee Russia, um, when they leave Russia, uh, are going to Europe, some or another. Of course, people who can, some of them will go to North America, um, but many, most, will go to Europe. Um, and this is true for general Russians. It's also true for Chechens. Um, the reputation, of course, so let me speak specifically about Chechens first. I mean, the reputation, of course, for Chechens has become so problematic now. Um, the association in the public mind in Europe and I would say in, in America among um, certain kinds of audiences with, with Islamic militancy, with terrorism, um, whether it's through the Boston Marathon bombing, whether it's through the recent murder in France of the, the, the teacher, um, or whether it's through the Islamic State and all of the conversation about um, militants from Chechnya and the North Caucasus fighting in Syria, the image of Chechens has become very much associated with Islamic militancy. And that um, ties right in with this very xenophobic turn that's taken place in Europe um, over the last, you know, 10 years, which has certainly become dominant um, during the, the, the 2015-2016 migration crisis. And that has produced a very much a willingness and a desire not to have people getting asylum even when the, the justifications are very clear, as they are in the case of basically every Chechen. And so in, in that's most um, acute in the situation around the Belarusian-Polish border, because um, that has been the, the most frequent way for people to try to enter Europe, um, is people flee, you know, flee Russia, get to Belarus, get to Brest. So it's obviously, it's easy if you have a Russian citizenship to enter Belarus, where it was, and then it's easy to get to Brest, and then you try to get into Poland across the border. And the Polish border authorities clearly instituted a process of just widespread systematic pushbacks. A pushback is when someone is coming to seek asylum, but you don't allow them to file an asylum complaint. You just push them, push them back, push them back across the border. Um, even for those who arrived, and sometimes even for those who achieved refugee status, there's been a problem of... Russia submitting national security information in these confidential closed manners that results in people's deportation. So it might be, you know, they aren't given asylum um, in the first place, or it might be that they're deported sometimes even after receiving asylum later um, due to additional information that's presented. And frequently that information might be presented in a fashion that's not available to the person, so they can't challenge it. You know, they don't have an opportunity to have access to it in like a you know, an adversarial process that would allow them to challenge the allegations that are being made about them. And some of those people, when they're sent back, um, you know, uh, I, I would say it's interesting that when people are sent back to Chechnya, when it does happen, they aren't always immediately imprisoned, although sometimes they are um, by the government. But there is a pattern of people who are, uh, you know, released or allowed to go free for a year or two and then wind up dead in a what the government will call a counterterrorism operation, of which, of course, there are many, and they're going on all the time in Chechnya, um, and which many human rights groups believe are simply extrajudicial killings. And so there's this, this pattern of people who are forced to go back to Chechnya, maybe initially when the press light is still on them in those first few weeks after they return, they might be allowed to go around and, and, and be at liberty, and then a year or two later, they're killed uh, by the state. And 
it's a very serious issue. I think it's something that Europe really isn't, um, in particular, isn't kind of able to grapple with it because of its own identity crisis um, and how all of this feeds into their fears. What about people who are extradited back to other parts of Russia? Like, are there cases where people, you know, get returned and there is, like, due process, you can see my air quotes, in terms of, you know, them being put on trial? The cases that we've seen where there were the most, what we would call unlawful deportations, where people were sent back who shouldn't be sent back, they were typically from the North Caucasus. Um, and so the cases tended to follow these very winding patterns later that I described. You have a lot of people who get detained um, from regular Russia who get detained in Europe on these kinds of requests, whether it's on an Interpol request or on some other uh, through some other mechanism that the, the government's been able to request their detention. But there are, it seems that they're less frequently sent back, frankly. And I think there is a kind of dynamic here that um, is worth considering about, you know, who in Europe is considered, you know, a Russian who's being targeted by the government for being a dissident and who is considered, you know, a Muslim who is <laughs> maybe more fair game. I should, I should emphasize as well, this is a dynamic throughout the whole report. So when we looked at this this relatively large group of cases and tried to code them, we noticed that um, of the 608 cases that we compiled of this very direct, very physical kind of transnational repression, that 58% of them had Muslim names, basically. Um, so it's very much an issue that's, that's universal, I would say, in this area, in this field, which is that if you are Muslim and you are in transit, right? Whether you're fleeing as a refugee, whether you're an economic migrant, however you're moving, if your origin state is looking for you for some reason, your political leverage in that situation, because some of these, these things should be legally handled, but they're often politically handled, your political leverage is lower. You face, you face a very serious threat um, from the origin states. So it's not just a Russian and, and European problem, it's actually a global one. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. It's our only English-language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and come back soon.